This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. And thank you for another 30 minutes of your precious time. As today we discuss, once again, the politics of publishing. The American publishing world is always in flux and a massive American business. Uh, Among the concerns this year is a paper shortage and the U.S. Justice Department starting to scrutinize the merger of large publishing houses, as well as how crying on the social media platform TikTok can sell books. With us today is the maven of American publishing and the author of the Hot Sheet Industry uh, newsletter, Jane Friedman. Welcome, Jane. Hi, Cherry. Thanks for coming on again. Always good to have you. So let's get to the sexy stuff first. So there is a call. I guess they're they're saying there is a paper shortage um, and it's part of the supply chain. So the supply chain has become a word that people just throw around. But for listeners, it's the goods that are coming into America. Some of it's being tied up at the source because of COVID, but a lot of it, there are ships, you know, on Savannah shores and Long Beach shores that can't get unloaded because they don't have the workers or the truckers. What impacts are going to have on uh, publishing for this holiday season? It's still somewhat unknown because no one's quite sure what books will take off. So a lot of publishing is, you know, projecting what will be popular and you never know when something's going to get a great review from the New York Times or Right, right. So, you know, it's about predicting what the hit makers will be. Shakespeare didn't have to deal with this. I mean, <laughs> this is crazy. Paper shortage. Uh, how how does a what would a paper shortage do to the industry? Do you think? Uh, well, this actually goes back some years. So there's there's been a problem with paper supply. There's been a problem with printing supply, and it's you know some printers are getting into different types of manufacturing. So like all of those Amazon boxes require paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's it's not the same paper that goes into a book. So you're seeing a lot of these manufacturers switch over their um their presses and their, you know, all their equipment to make things that are maybe have a better future mm-hmm. rather than paper. But you know, this crazy thing is book paper and book printing have increased demand just as the supply is kind oh, of wow. bottoming out. Oh, wow. Combination. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so people don't have to worry that Santa Claus isn't going <laughs> to bring them their favorite novel. They don't have to worry about that yet. Not yet. Uh, <laughs> probably, you know, like all of the bestsellers, there's probably going to be plenty of stock for the yeah. bestsellers. It's the lesser known authors right. or the debut authors who get lots of buzz. The, the harder to predict sales are more in danger. So uh, we want, I wanted to talk to you about TikTok. You know, TikTok is a social media uh, platform that has just exploded. A hundred million people on there, many young people. And, and uh, it has started to play a role in the, in the book publishing industry. I remember reading a story about these two young women that are actually kind of reviewing books on TikTok. And authors are trying to get on that <laughs> onto that because they want to sell more books. But an interesting story, and I think you had it on the hot sheet, is that 
crying on TikTok sells books. Explain yeah. that one. It is fascinating. With TikTok, you've got, like you said, young people talking about books, and they're talking about them in a really substantive, meaningful way. Like they're not just flashing covers for the aesthetics or to be trendy or to be cool. They want to talk about how the books make them feel. Mm-hmm. And so they, they're getting into the real emotional core of why they like certain books, and that is causing some of the most meaningful, organic, meaning not advertised, not advertising-based sales. And so we're getting older books, like t- you know, talking about those things that are hard to predict. We're getting books from you know, 2018, 2019 that TikTok influencers are saying, I love this, or I cried, or, you know, I had this emotional reaction. And it's just amazing. And that's kind of cool, because I think most people feel that young people don't read. And uh, we talked the last time you were on that, that's where the big growth was during COVID. It was it was a a big growth, maybe not the most. But um, that that's kind of uh, neat to see. Um, that that's happening. And, uh, and of course, always Amazon is always in the news, the big, uh, most of the books in America now being sold on Amazon, uh, the giant. So there's an interesting story, a small independent store in, I think it was Illinois is suing them. And one of the things they mentioned was that Amazon has favored nation status. How does that work? Well, this is complicated. Okay. So it's about, it's so much bigger than what these bookstores say it's about, which makes it tricky to discuss. Um, To understand the issue, you just have to mainly under, you have to look at like the last 10 years of what Amazon has done to the book market. And part of that is heavily discount print and dominate the ebook market. So the bookstores are really upset that Amazon is essentially able to sell books at a loss. Mm -hmm. And by, by deeply discounting, but that doesn't hurt the publishers because publishers get paid the same amount no matter what Amazon decides to discount. Mm-hmm. So independent bookstores can't run at a loss like Amazon can. Mm-hmm. Now, the lawsuit, if you talk to industry insiders, the one that you mentioned, people will call it a fishing expedition. <laughs> so yeah. they're really looking for some sort of information or discovery or evidence that Amazon is breaking the law in the U.S., but it would be – most people don't think Amazon is breaking the law. Mm-hmm. If you look at Europe, they have laws that protect independent bookstores from the sort of predatory behavior that Amazon engages in. This, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. They, they have price fixing for books. Like France mm-hmm. is passing mm-hmm. legislation that doesn't allow Amazon to ship for a penny, which is their way of getting around discounting books. Yeah. The, yeah, that's very interesting. So the U.S., you know, the government, states, every, federal government, anybody, like they, anyone with that sort of power could make the situation better for independent bookstores. But mm-hmm. I think the lawsuit perhaps will draw attention to the problem, mm-hmm. but I don't mm-hmm. think they're necessarily going to find what they want um, through the current lawsuit that you mentioned. Do you see the United States doing anything like that? I mean, like the other countries have done? It's possible, but I haven't seen any strong steps in that direction. And we talk about the independent bookstores and, you know, some people say they're an endangered species. But um, one of the things that was interesting is that Target and Walmart actually cut into Amazon a little bit. I think it was only 2.5 percent. But um, what did you what do you make of that? During the pandemic, people have started to shop more consciously 
in a way that perhaps is looking at their local and regional retailers and businesses. They want them to survive what's happening. They want them to be there when things return to whatever normal looks like. And people have also shown more willingness to shop at different places online rather Mm -hmm. than I'm just going to go to Amazon and call it done. So Target and Walmart had a little bit of an advantage when things were shut down because they could stay open as essential retailers, Mm -hmm. whereas some other places could not. So that's one reason they had a really nice bounce against Amazon um, in terms of book sales, because they they all have book sections. But just independent bookstores too, there's actually been a little mini independent bookstore boom as a result of the pandemic because of this more conscious consumerism. Go bookstores, go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of neat. Because uh, you and I had talked before, the, just the, the charm of the local bookstore. And uh, one of the biggest bookstores, not a little one, but I mean, not a, not one of those corner ones is Barnes and Noble. And they had a change in their executive, I guess it was earlier this year, or maybe the end of last year. Uh, how's that gone for them? Uh, jury's still out, perhaps. There's a lot of mixed reports coming out from Barnes & Noble, so it kind of depends on who you're paying attention to and what sort of PR spin you're looking at. Yeah. Um, probably Barnes & Noble did not do that well if you look at just their online or e-commerce sales. So if you compare them to how Amazon was doing or, or how other bookstores were doing, even independent ones, it doesn't seem like they did that well. But we don't know because they're private. And so we only have, you know, kind of gossip and rumor and other other speculation. That said, Barnes and Noble took the opportunity when they had when they had to close down to reset the stores, make some changes to how they select and merchandise books. And so there is a lot of hope that they're going to be able to turn things around. So, you know, their store foot traffic is getting back to normal. Their sales Mm. are presumably getting back to normal as far as selling through that store uh, register. But they're still, you know, if you look at if you read the smoke signals, it looks like online they're still suffering quite a bit. And the traditional publishers are doing well. I think you had reported like 20% up last year. and mm-hmm. um, But that is affecting ebook sales. Is that right? Yes. Well, ebook sales spiked in 2020, which isn't a big surprise given what happened. They are starting to level off and even decline in relation to 2020. So that, that growth has probably seen its end. I don't know that we're going to get that kind of ebook growth um, unless something dramatic happens to change retail conditions. And the traditional publishing boost, is that due to the COVID? Yes. it's uh, There was increased demand for books uh, during the pandemic, especially for educational materials for children. And there's also been a huge uh, increase in fiction sales, mm-hmm. which was very positive for just about everyone because they had been declining for years, especially adult fiction. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's really good news, generally speaking, on the print side. Ebooks are kind of going back to normal. And um, we, we, the last time you were on COVID, we, we were able to kind of analyze the, the year and how it depicted. And I guess we all hoped we would be out of this thing. But since we've talked before, how has this resurgence in COVID affected book publishing? Right now, I think publishers are concerned about the supply chain issues because they're trying to ensure that they can feed whatever demand is out there. But the the good news is that usually if people can't find the book they want, 
they just choose another book. <laughs> so it's you, you don't know. have any uh, chocolate ice cream. We're gonna get some vanilla. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That's great. And uh, the other thing we we talked about last time is the big five publishers. So we have five major publishers who um, I always say have a monopoly on American reading because they're able to get their books before the reviewers. The reviewers read their books. It's kind of this circle that they're all in. But um, there was uh, some movement by the Justice Department because some of these big five publishers are merging together and there was some uh the justice department was looking at them and i I found that fascinating because you know when you talk about antitrust and and you know looking at mergers you think about rockefeller Mm -hmm. and jp morgan (laughs) big oil phone companies what's what's the government's concern with these mergers well, if you read the 26-page filing, uh, you'll... <laughs> and we'll put it in a book and put yeah. it on Amazon. <laughs> it's uh, very much focused on authors' earnings. So the government seems convinced, um, probably by people who have told them of their concerns. For instance, the Authors Guild, it looks like their fingerprints are all over this. Mm-hmm. Um, they're concerned that the top selling authors and books will see a reduction in earnings because as publishers consolidate, they can, you know, they, they're too big uh, for someone, for an author to say no to. So the authors will have, and their agents will have less leverage. They'll have fewer places to go to for better advances or better contractual agreements. Mm-hmm. So that was the concern voiced when the merger was announced last year. And that is, in fact, what the Department of Justice is saying it's concerned about. So it's not actually consumer concern yeah. that they seem to have. It's actually author's earnings, which is, you know, it will be fascinating to see how that plays out and how the publishers um, respond. Exactly. And um, I think you reported, too, that um, book deals, the the signing of authors for book deals was down. Is that right? It is. This year, it's up. Um, Okay. So, in fact, there was the CEO of HarperCollins saying that they were signing, I think it was maybe 20% more than they were the prior year. Um, but this is a, strikes me a little bit as irrational exuberance. Mm-hmm. So the whole reason, at least all signals indicate, the reason sales are up is because of the pandemic and all of the change that has wrought in people's lives. That isn't likely to continue for the long term. So book publishing is a slow industry. And if you're acquiring books now, those are going to come out probably one to three years from now. So mm-hmm. how will the market conditions look when those books eventually reach the market? Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's going to be as, as as healthy and and growing as it is right now. That doesn't mean the books will fail, but it seems to me like there's going to be a lot more supply um, and a lot of books to market and promote with decreased demand. One of the things that was um, also I noticed, and um, we I didn't give you kind of a heads up on this question, but um, I saw Sally Rooney decided not to sell books in Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was really interested in that because um, I would think that's a pretty decent market. And of course, it was a, a political stance and concerns mm-hmm. about Israel and Palestine and their treatment of the Palestinians. Uh, did that surprise you? It's certainly the first time I like I can recall where a major best-selling author said no, and I, this was to a translation, if I'm not mistaken. So I think you can probably buy her book in English 
uh, in Israel or Palestine, but she would not agree to a Hebrew translation of her book. Um, now, if that ha- it might have been related to the publisher specifically, mm-hmm. and maybe the publisher's activities. I haven't mm-hmm. looked at the situation closely, but it definitely is related to ethical, moral concerns related to the treatment of, of the Palestinians. And we saw that with Ben and Jerry's, right? I mean, they said yeah. that they weren't going to sell there too. And I, I mean, I, you probably have a better understanding. Like, that, would that cost her a lot? I mean, would that cost her a lot of sales? Um, the truth is, probably not. <laughs> Usually these uh, foreign language deals are for small sums in comparison to, at least for her, the biggest territory or biggest sales of all would be happening in the UK and the US, like by a huge margin. Right. So, you know, it's, pro- I'm not going to say that it's not meaningful financially for her mm-hmm. to do this, mm-hmm. but it would be small in the grand scheme. It's a very powerful statement, though. I mean, yeah. um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, pretty uh, pretty strong statement. And uh, what other kind of things are you seeing out there? What are what are you keeping your eye on? Well, the very trendy thing to talk about right now are NFTs, non fungible tokens, um, which are taking off in the art world and the gaming world, and now writing and publishing is very interested in NFTs. Yeah, explain that in NFTs. It's so torturous to try and explain them. I will try. Attorney Friedman, <laughs> Attorney Friedman, prosecutor, will you please? So imagine, you know, in a in uh, online or virtual environment, um, maybe you have virtual currency like Bitcoin or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So you have this virtual money or cryptocurrency. What do you buy with that in your virtual life? Well, think about having your possessions as being NFTs. These are usually virtual possessions. Like you buy this NFT token that represents your that that you have this piece of artwork, or it's kind of like the Rolex on your wrist, or mm-hmm. you know the Birkin bag on your mm-hmm. arm, or you know something that indicates status, prestige, what you like. And so there's this idea that in the future, although there, it happens now, that you will be these NFTs will represent value, things you can buy and sell. They're supposed to represent, you know, also some experiences that you have a right to now. So for example, Time magazine is selling NFTs, these tokens representing covers. So you can buy a Time magazine cover, the NFT token hmm. representing the cover. Hmm. And they're making money off of this. Um, So let's say you have, I don't know where this would exist, but let's say you have kind of your little trophy case of NFTs that you display for people to see. You have your, you have your Time magazine covers, which I guess show that you are a connoisseur of time. (laughs) It sounds a little kind of like when I describe it, it sounds a little silly, Um, but that's essentially what's happened. There's a lot of speculation, right? So it's very, um, some people say it's a pyramid scheme and (laughs) (laughs) so they're a common sewer. They're not a connoisseur. They're a common sewer. (laughs) Uh, no, it would not be a pyramid scheme in book sales. Um, so we were talking a little bit about the mergers and the deals. Um, these mergers really narrowing the possibility of 
you know, authors breaking into that circle I was talking about? Does it have an effect on lesser known authors? Um, we talked about it before. It seems like when you're proposing a book, now you have to show them how many podcasts you put on, mm -hmm. how many files. You basically have to sell the book before they'll send it to the publisher. Is it narrowing the ability of, of new authors to emerge? No. And I'm glad you asked this question, because if you look at this this merger and also the the suit now that's been brought, they specifically talk about top selling authors mm -hmm. again and again. Like it's mentioned two dozen times in, in the filing, <laughs> top selling authors. Right. Um, so we're talking we call about them TSAs, <laughs> NFTs, TSAs. We're just going to go through the whole thing with letters. It's a NSA on an NFT on a TSA. Mm -hmm. go ahead. Mm -hmm. Precisely. <laughs> so, but it's, I mean, it's such a small elite, you know, um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about them and that there couldn't be some trickle down effects. Like if they start doing more poorly, does that affect the huge community of authors? One might debate that. Mm -hmm. But I don't buy the argument that by merging some of these huge players, you fundamentally get a different artistic landscape or a different literary landscape. Many of the independent and small presses, which are celebrated in this country, are going to keep producing wonderful works mm -hmm. with all sorts of authors, regardless of what happens among these corporate megaliths. Mm -hmm. So it's really, to me, it's... It's very, a very insidery uh, maneuvering. I don't know that it changes what gets published. All to do, what is it, Shakespeare? All to do about nothing? Is it, was that what it was? One of the, <laughs> yeah, a lot to do about nothing, something like that. So um, how about the holidays coming up? What do you see happening? Is there anything you're keeping your eye on? I think there are going to be some authors whose books will probably not release at the time they expected because their books didn't get off the boat. Um, yes, so, yes. I didn't even think of that. That's interesting. Yeah. So look for some of those disappointments or delays. I even have a friend whose book has been delayed twice already, and I, I wonder if it will come here in time for Christmas. I, and I saw that some of them are actually intentionally pushing them back. Is that right? Yes, because it's much better for publicity purposes to, you know, actually have a secure release date so you can get on your podcasts and all the rest yes. of it at the right time. You don't yeah. want to be pushing the book when people can't get their hands on it. Right, right. Uh, in addition to the NFTs, anything else happening out there that you really kind of watching? Aside from, you know, the Department of Justice suit is going to be top of mind for anyone in the industry. It's going to create or it's going to lead to so many op-eds and um, gnashing of teeth, no matter which direction it goes in. Right. So um, that's definitely what I'm watching. The other thing that's been interesting, I think, once we come out of the pandemic, people will be thinking about this more, is the audiobook market and where it's headed now that there's so much AI-based technology and narration that's coming to the fore. Yeah. So this is a potentially very upsetting for uh, human narrators to mm -hmm. see AI taking some of their work. Hmm. But I think a lot of publishers, they just don't have the resources or they can't invest in human narration for their older titles. So I think we're going to see more AI-driven work happen. Artificial intelligence. Oh, And uh, in, the, in the audio books, I'm seeing uh, or I'm hearing, I guess, more... Uh, yeah, I guess Audible has always kind of cornered that market, but there are other um, products coming out and other, other producers. Is that right? Audible is number one, but there are others like Spotify and Storytel. 
um, an Apple that would like to take, a, you know, some of the market. They're all, you know, kind of, what we're seeing is almost a, a merging of audiobooks and podcasts mm-hmm. to some extent. Mm-hmm. So anything that's spoken word, you'll see those companies I just mentioned competing against one another for market share and subscription dollars. And I wanted to talk to you too about book clubs. So book club is trying to get into kind of the masterclass uh, realm. Masterclass mm-hmm. is a, a subscription. Uh, I think it's $15 a month and you can watch classes taught by professionals. I've, I've watched a few. I watched one recently, uh, Martin Scorsese. I've watched Sam and Rusty. Um, What's Book Club trying to do there? They're trying to offer authors a hub for getting their books read and discussed by more book clubs across the country. And so there is kind of like a curated uh, book club system at the book club site where you'll have influencers who are selecting books Mm -hmm. for their followers to read along with them. Mm -hmm. But the site also wants to provide community and resources and discussion guides for local and regional book clubs that, you know, will use the materials at the site in conjunction with their own local conversations. Mm. Um, the, The question I have about this, though, is that, you know, there's nothing new about book clubs, really. Um, yeah, yeah. It tends to be a pretty what l- low key and low cost activity mm-hmm. for a lot mm-hmm. of people. A lot of book clubs are affiliated with libraries, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. So, book club is a bit of a high price offering. You know, I can see with masterclass, like you're getting these huge celebrities to share their secrets of success. Um, but with book club, it's it's not really the same value proposition. So I'm just curious to see how they're going to make this work given how much they want people to pay. It's always wonderful to have you on and you're, you're so uh, on, on point with this industry. You keep an eye on it very closely. Um, if anybody is a writer, go on to janefriedman.com. She has wonderful classes and I've taken a few. Uh, but tell us more about the hot sheet. I'd like to give you a chance to plug that again. Yeah, the hot sheet is my paid newsletter. It comes out every two weeks and it helps authors stay up to date in plain English about what's happening in the business. So a lot, many of the topics we've talked about today are covered in the hot sheet. Super. As always, appreciate you coming on. You have a wonderful holiday and we'll get you back on soon. Thank you, Jerry. Alrighty. And we will be back next week with a special Thanksgiving edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. Until then, always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.